And let me have you remain standing, and let's take our Bibles, open them up to the Gospel according to Mark, to chapter 14 this morning. Chapter 14, we will read, uh, beginning in verse 53, and we will read through the end of the chapter. We'll be just looking at a portion of that this morning, but we'll read that whole uh, passage. Beginning in verse 53, Mark chapter 14. This is God speaking to us this morning uh, through his word. Let us give appropriate attention and humility before it. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, You will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We pray, Lord, as we have just sung, that you would grant us grace to read and to mark your holy word, that we would receive and by your grace understand its truths, that we would receive it with meekness and humility, that we would seek to learn what you have for us this morning through this portion of your most glorious word. We pray you would bless the one who preaches, Lord. May his weakness be the opportunity, Lord, for your strength to be shown. 
And we pray that you would help us all as we hear your word this morning, as we hear it preached, Father, as you have ordained preaching to be the means by which we we hear and reflect on your word. We pray that you would bless our time in this passage today, and we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Last week, we looked at the betrayal, the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was, as he had prophesied, uh, betrayed by Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve apostles, betrayed into the hands of the Jewish leaders, accompanied as they were as they came into the garden that night, accompanied by a large contingent of Roman soldiers. We're coming, as we work our way through this gospel, through this chapter, we're coming to the end of the week now, coming to the end of of the Passion Week, and coming very rapidly to the crucifixion of Christ. And this this morning, uh, brothers and sisters, I want us to begin to look at the trial of Jesus, perhaps we should say the trials of Jesus, because although Mark here, as we look at his record, only deals with two of them, uh, actually Jesus in the next few hours of his life will appear before four different groups or people, um, two of them twice. And three times he will appear before religious authorities, Three times he will appear before civil authorities, all within the next few hours. Part of the eternal plan of God for the redemption of man through the work of his Son, whom he had sent into the world, was that Jesus, who of course had committed no crimes, who had committed no sins at all, who had lived his entire life in perfect conformity, a perfect accord with the law of God, that he was destined to be accused and condemned by his own people, the Jews, and put to death by the civil authorities of the day, which lay at this time in the hands of the Roman Empire, and was led at that time by Tiberius Caesar, the emperor of the Roman Empire, and locally by the governor, or the prefect, of Judea, a man called Pontius Pilate. And the, the record of these, these trials of Jesus, these uh, confrontations between the authorities and Jesus are spread across the four Gospels so that one has to uh, read all four of the Gospels in order to get the full picture of what took place here in these um, overnight hours. And just so as we begin into this part of Mark's gospel so that we have a a big picture uh, of the way the appearances of Jesus played uh, out before these men and these groups, let me just run through it very quickly for you, summarize it. Uh, After he was arrested in the garden, Jesus was taken, John tells us, to a man named Annas, who is called the high priest. He was actually the former high priest. He had been removed from that position that he had earlier been put into 
by the Romans, uh, the way he was removed did not sit well with the, the Jews. And many of the people, probably most of the people, still considered Annas, this man, to be the true high priest, if not the official one, not the formal one. And so Jesus is taken first to Annas, and then after a very short time, uh, as recorded in John's Gospel with Annas, Jesus is taken then to the formal high priest, uh, Caiaphas, where we will meet up with Jesus in our passage in Mark this morning. After Caiaphas um, acting really as the convener and the leader of that Jewish high court known as the Sanhedrin, after he and the court uh, accuse and condemn Jesus, he is held over until daybreak when the Sanhedrin can then officially, properly meet to conclude their work. And so probably the second uh, time that Jesus meets with them is to give them the appearance of validity to the proceedings that we're going to look at this morning, uh, proceedings which, as we will see, are marked at several points with inconsistency and, and irregularity and outright illegality according to their own laws. So after Jesus then is condemned by the Sanhedrin, he is taken away and taken to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, who likewise interrogates Jesus, but who concludes that Jesus is not guilty of any crime, especially no crime deserving death, which is what the Jews have demanded when they bring Jesus to him. And so then learning that Jesus is from Galilee and with the fortuitous situation that the governor of Galilee is in Jerusalem at that time, Pilate sends Jesus over to the Galilean governor, Herod Antipas. And Herod, who Luke will tell us, uh, has wanted to see Jesus and was glad to have the chance to see him, uh, very excited and hoping, the Bible tells us, to, to see Jesus do some sign for him, some miracle. He questions Jesus as well. But when Jesus fails to perform for him, in fact, fails to answer any of his questions, he gets angry, and he has Jesus beaten and mockingly dressed in royal clothing before he sends him back then to Pilate. And Pilate again will try to convince the Jewish leaders that Jesus has done nothing deserving death, and he, he desires to put Jesus up for release. He uses a, a regular Roman concession uh, that, that was done um, every year to, for the Jewish people. And, and, but the chief priest convinced Pilate to, or convinced the people to demand that Pilate release another man, Barabbas, a, a murderer, a notorious criminal, and for Jesus then to be crucified to which Pilate eventually concedes, but not before literally washing his hands of the whole affair. In all of these proceedings, we note a great irony, a disjunct is before our eyes that was apparently not evident to any of these parties, other than Jesus, of course, 
Namely, that while Jesus' ministry and indeed his life in these hours appears to be at its lowest point, and that Jesus now is nothing more before them than a helpless prisoner, one who once spoke great words but is now at, at their mercy. Um, the truth is that he is fulfilling prophecy and coming to what would be seen as his greatest defeat, but was, in fact, we know, to the glory of God, his greatest victory on the cross. And what we read a moment ago is Mark's slice of, of these events. He relates, as I said, only two of these confrontations, one here in chapter 14 and the other in chapter 15. And here in chapter 14, as we read it, Mark really relates two events that take place simultaneously. The first is Jesus' trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. The second is the record of Peter's denial of Jesus, as Jesus had, had foretold. And Mark gives us all of this in a slightly modified form of one of his rhetorical sandwiches, starting with one thing and then leaving that and then coming back to it later. What we're going to do in, in these verses for the rest of chapter 14 here uh, is I want, to take a, I want to take a look at these verses the way that some people eat Oreos. And, and deal with the inside first, and we'll leave the outside for last. I don't know how people eat Oreos like that, but that's for another time. So we'll skip over Peter for now, and we'll look at him again next week, but we are going to look today at what takes place here overnight, in the, the early hours of the morning, really, uh, what we would call Thursday night and into the pre-dawn hours of Friday morning. The first thing we're going to look at is the ruse of a trial. And so we begin there in verse 53 with the statement of Mark that they led Jesus to the high priest. Led seems to me to be maybe a nice way of the way that they brought Jesus to him. Uh, but they bring him to the high priest. And this would be Caiaphas, the official high priest at this time, the appointed high priest. He was appointed in 18 AD, and he served for 18 years, and it's during this time that he is the appointed Roman appointed high priest. And the Jewish high priest, as Caiaphas is, um, was the most powerful man in Judea, apart from, of course, the, the Roman governors at the time. And he is also, the high priest is, Caiaphas is, the ruling officer of that group that we have heard so much about in the last few weeks as we've gone through this, uh, the Sanhedrin, the high court of the Jews. And it is to Caiaphas, in his capacity as the head of the Sanhedrin, that Jesus is brought on this night. You see down there, if you drop down uh, to the um, last half of the verse, that all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. We are familiar with them, knowing that those are the constituent groups and elements of the Sanhedrin. So this is a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Down in verse 55, we get that confirmed when Mark refers to this group as the whole council. 
And the word council there is a, a translation, a transliter or a translation here of the word sunadrion or Sanhedrin. And now then, with that introduction, we'll skip over the part with, um, with Peter as it speaks about him, and we'll skip down to verse 65, or 55 rather, and see what is the purpose of this midnight gathering. Mark gives it to us here in verse 55 when he says that they were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And that statement, beloved, says a mouthful regarding this trial of Jesus. It gives us uh, the ruse that is under play, the deception, the trick here in this, which is what this trial is. In fact, it's not really technically probably not even a trial. It would be more like a preliminary hearing. But it's not really even that. They were seeking, as Mark tells us, seeking testimony against Jesus. This is a trial in search of a charge. You've heard of a kangaroo court, which is called a kangaroo court because it proceeds by leaps and jumps over tiresome things like rules and evidence just to get to the desired outcome of those conducting the court. That's what we have here, really, a kangaroo court, in which the verdict is a foregone conclusion. And the task of the court, then, is to try to find some way to get to that conclusion. So it's pretty much backwards from the way that this should be done. And that conclusion, of course, is that Jesus is guilty of something that renders him subject to being put to death. So that's how, how this is set up. They have the verdict already, guilty. They have the sentence already, death. And all that's left, and the purpose really of this gathering of the Sanhedrin, is, is the rather small matter, to them at least, it seems, of a charge and proof, if they can find any. And the council, the Sanhedrin, are seeking testimony that fits their narrative. It says here that they, the whole council, met together. Um, verse 56 says that many bore false witness against him. So they have these people who come to bear witness against Jesus. They've been seeking this testimony. It's interesting to think of how they did that. Is there a bulletin board in town that they, they put a notice up and said, if you have a testimony about this Jesus, we'd like to talk to you. Of course, they'd have to vet them so they didn't have the, the positive uh, witnesses against what Christ had done, and they just want the negative. Uh, but somehow they put out the word, and, and these come. And remember, this is the middle of the night that these witnesses are being gathered together. So it seems like there's some pre-planning going on here. But these, these witnesses come, and they bear witness against Jesus. And just like with all the various questions that we've looked at as we've seen 
Uh, Jesus, as he spoke and taught in Jerusalem this week uh, leading up to this, we see the same thing with their questions to Jesus as we see really here in this trial, a fishing expedition. They're trying to find something to, to grab onto and to use to bring Jesus before the civil authorities that we'll talk about in a moment. They need to justify their predetermined outcome, their predetermined verdict. In short, their desire, verse 55, is to put him to death. That's what they're after. Not justice, not truth, but an excuse, a reason, an opportunity to see him killed. And, and that as a purpose, as a goal for a trial, a proceeding like this before the Sanhedrin, this is just the beginning of what are several inconsistencies, as I mentioned earlier, even illegalities of this whole process. For example, one is that the fact that this trial before the Sanhedrin is being held at night is contrary to their rules. The Sanhedrin was not allowed to meet at night. They were to meet during the day, in the open. This, this is being done in the shadows, being done in the darkness. And remember, remember that they had been concerned about the fact that the people in Jerusalem during the preparation for, for the Passover, remember they were concerned about the fact that the people held Jesus to be a prophet. And so they thought that it would not be prudent for them to arrest Jesus uh, during the feast uh, because a riot might break out. Actually, the text says, and, and earlier in Mark, because they feared the people. But now Judas has made things easy on them because they did not have to try to arrest Jesus in the city during the feast because Judas has led them right to Jesus when Jesus is out of town, up in the garden at night with his disciples. So now they can get right to work still at night that they might condemn him and move quickly toward his execution. So that's one thing is that this being done is being done at night also, it was contrary to Jewish jurisprudence for this council to meet for capital cases such as this is on the eve of a Sabbath or of a festival. This is both. And so this, too, was not right for them to, to do this according to their own laws. Also, the proceedings of the Sanhedrin, the, the way that things would progress, was that first the, the, the defense would speak, or first there would be an effort to establish the innocence of the party, not jump straight to his guilt, which according to the records that we have is what is being done. There's no recorded effort, in fact, to give Jesus any kind of defense at all. We can also make note of the fact that in capital cases like this, the witnesses were to be strictly warned that if they gave false testimony that the blood of the accused was to be ascribed to the false witness and to their families until eternity. There's no record of that being done, especially with the 
The idea that these are called and are known to be false witnesses, it seems that that warning was probably not even given. And then it was also required, according to Old Testament law, that there needed to be at least two eyewitnesses and that they had to agree, which we see did not happen here. And speaking of false witnesses, as much as they had sought for someone, however they gathered them together, to speak uh, a damning testimony against Jesus, the end of verse 55 says so clearly, but they found none. Such is the life of our Lord. Such is his conduct, his speech, his attitude, his, his dealings with other people, his, his love for others, his love for the law of God, that they could not find anything on which to base, really, a charge. And verse 55 then kind of gives us a, a summary of this trial before the Sanhedrin. And then verses 56 through 59 give us the details of it. And it wasn't that there were no people to come forward and to speak against Jesus. And again, interestingly, in the middle of the night, they're able to round these people up or, or call them out. The prosecution was able to bring forward many, he says, Mark says here, who bore witness against Jesus. Lots of people coming to the stand, lots of people giving their, their record of what Jesus has, has done. The apparently evil things that he has done, we see one example here. Uh, the problem, in the words of perhaps TV's Ben Matlock, is there weren't no proof. In fact, there weren't no consistent testimony at all. Verse 56 says, many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Not a great thing in a trial. The false witnesses couldn't even get their stories straight. You would think if people are willing to lie, that they would be able to come up with a single lie. But they couldn't. Until it seems that there was one, finally, that seemed promising. Several, some, verse 57, some stood up and noticed they too bore false witness against Jesus. But here is their testimony, um, generally their testimony, because we see that they don't even agree with each other. But here's what they say generally, verse 59, um, says even about this testimony they did not agree. And here's what they were saying. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now that's good for them, because here is Jesus threatening violence or threatening to stir up violence against the temple. This would cause quite a ruckus in Jerusalem if that's what Jesus did or what he had planned to do. But this alleged statement of Jesus is obviously taken from a statement of Jesus that's recorded only by John, and it comes way back in the second chapter of his gospel where John records what is probably a, an earlier uh, cleansing of the temple. We've recently seen uh, Jesus go into the temple here during Passion Week, 
and drive out the buyers and the sellers and turn over the tables and make statements about uh, how they have turned the house of prayer into a den of thieves. But it's generally understood by many uh, scholars that, that Jesus actually did this twice. And that John's record, way back in chapter 2 of John, think of that, and here we have uh, the other record in chapter 13 or 14 of Mark towards the end, um, is generally understood that this is the, an earlier cleansing of the temple when Jesus was earlier in the temple um, as opposed to the one that we've seen in Mark and that Matthew and Luke record as well. But even so, the witnesses seem to have fallen victim to faulty recollections. John records the statement for us. And, you know, in, in fact, let's turn there real quick. Just turn over, if you want, to John chapter 2. And we'll see what Jesus said. So this is after Jesus has cleansed the temple, has done all of the things that he did, uh, similar to what he did that we saw a few weeks ago. But in verse 18 of chapter 2, the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, and here it is, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus said, destroy this temple. That is, if you destroy this temple. He didn't say, I'm going to destroy this temple. And then he said that if they did that, that in three days I will raise it up. He didn't say, I will build another not made with hands, which is what the false witnesses are saying. And John, of course, explains what Jesus was talking about, that Jesus was speaking of his body. So in the first place, Jesus did not say what the false witnesses were reporting that he said. And secondly, with this kangaroo court disregarding the rule of law, as Mark and the synoptics have described it, it's all the more amazing that they still can't agree. They can't get their stories straight. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. It's amazing. But God's worked this way in the past. Look back into the Old Testament, into Deuteronomy 7, 1 Samuel 7, 1 Samuel 14. We see several occasions where God throws his enemies into confusion. And it seems to be what's happening here. And it appears, and must have, to the high priest who's over this, who's presiding over this, that things are not going very well. And with the, this root of, of, of bringing false witnesses not panning out, the high priest decides to take a different tack then. And he challenges Jesus. He says, uh, have you, and this is verse 60, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? So two questions. Do you hear, Jesus, what they're saying? Don't you have anything to say about it? Come on, Jesus. Say something in response. You know, perhaps 
hoping, as they had done with all of these questions earlier, perhaps thinking and hoping that Jesus will seal the deal for them by something that he might say. He knew enough of Jesus that if Jesus had made that comment, he wouldn't deny it. But of course he hadn't, so he feels no need to defend himself. And Mark verse 61, uh, 14 verse 61 says, but he remained silent and made no answer. Now, if you are a student of the Scripture, immediately your mind should race back across the pages of your Bible, across the the threshold into the Old Testament, and and come to rest in Isaiah 53. And to verse 7, those well-known words about Christ that says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The silence of Christ, a silence that will be repeated when he comes before Pilate, as we'll see next week. And now, beloved, we come to the crisis point of this. As we come to the revelation of Jesus. If you've drifted off, come back. If the person next to you is nodding off, nudge them. Having failed with the false witnesses and failed with trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself about the false charges thus far, the high priest comes now to the the crux of the whole thing. At the end of verse 61, we read this, that again, the high priest asked him, and not again because he has asked him in this trial already this, but because this has come up before. He says to him, are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? Are you the Messiah? Remember, that's what Christ means. And that unfamiliar phrase there, Son of the blessed, that's just a a Jewish circumlocution Um, a a way of getting around saying son of God because the Jews didn't use God's name. So son of the blessed was a way that they would speak of God and he is here. So are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah, the son of God? That's what he's asking Jesus. In one of the other uh, gospels, he says, I adjure you by the living God to answer this question. I put you under oath. You don't have a way to wiggle out of this. You have to answer this before God. Are you the Messiah? And now, asked in this very straightforward way, Jesus speaks. He answers. He says, I am. Are you? I am. And that identification, the the Christ, the Messiah, identification that Jesus, remember back through our our study through the book of Mark here, that Jesus has for so long uh, put off and commanded others not to spread that truth about him because, he said, my hour has not yet come. He now fully confesses it because now, as we saw back in verse 41, the hour has come. The time for for hiding that is over. In the fullness of time, 
Paul says Christ came. And now, in the fullness of time, he will die. And it is made a sure fact with Jesus' self-proclamation as the Christ, the Son of God. This, beloved, is the Christological, having to do with Christ, it is the Christological climax of the gospel. To which Jesus adds even more explanation as he adds the implications here of this truth in verse 62. Look at there. He says, And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now remember, as we've looked at Mark's gospel, we have seen in various places that a large part of the reason for Jesus's uh, reticence to have his messianic identity revealed was in large part because of the fact of the Jewish misunderstanding of the expectation of the Messiah. We've talked about that on numerous occasions, how they had expected the Messiah to come and to be a, a, a civil sort of uh, soldier type of, of person that would come and would break apart the bonds of the Roman um, rule over them. But now, here, Jesus explains their error. He explains the truth by hooking his identity as the Messiah directly to the divine aspects of two of the most powerful passages of the Old Testament regarding the true nature of the Messiah who was promised to come. These words here, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That statement combines together words and ideas from two passages. One of them we read as our Old Testament reading this morning, Psalm 110. The other one we've spoke of several times as we've gone through this, Daniel 7:13. So right after affirming he is the Messiah, notice that Jesus shifts the terminology. He doesn't say you will see the Messiah seated at the right hand of power. He says you will see the Son of Man. They know what that meant. They know who Jesus, what he, Jesus was referring to. Let's see what Jesus is referring to. Turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Uh, we'll read verses, just verses 13 and 14. This is, this is this powerful vision that Daniel has been given that starts with, with God the Father, the Ancient of Days on his throne, uh, sitting in judgment and books being opened. And it speaks of the judgment that was to come on, on those who were coming against God in his kingdom. And then in verses 13 and 14, we read this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah and that is the Messiah. 
Not some mere civil, political leader who will lead in some temporal rebellion against Rome, but the one who was given authority over all things, the one whom John wrote was with God and was God. And, and we should see this too, so turn over to Psalm 110 again. We read it this morning, but it's, uh, we're just going to read the first verse so we can read it very quickly. Psalm 110, and remember, here's what Jesus has said in Mark. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Psalm 110 says, The Lord, that is the Ancient of Days, God the Father, says to my Lord, that is to the Messiah, sit at my right hand. That's the hand of power. That's the place of power, the seat of power. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Sit here at my right hand. Sit at that place of power. And so this combined statement, you can go back to Mark, looks beyond, looks beyond the coming crucifixion that is looming so large right now. It looks beyond that and speaks of both Jesus' resurrection and his ascension and his enthronement into heaven and it points to his parousia, his return, his coming again in the clouds of heaven as judge to judge heaven and earth. And beloved, note this, another part of the irony here, that these men, these creatures, are presuming to judge the one who has been anointed and appointed by God the Father as judge over the whole earth, who will one day come and judge the high priest and these elders and these priests and these scribes. And that this Jesus who stands before him, before them, is at the same time, yes, a, a victim before them that they can do uh, by God's allowance what they want to do with him, and yet at the same time, divinely speaking, this one before them is the king and the judge of all creation. But as Jesus speaks these words, and the first true words that have been spoken in this trial, the high priest gives his response, and that's the last thing that we'll see briefly here, the reaction of the council. In verses 63 and 65, the high priest tore his garment and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. So the high priest stands up. And as this appears maybe just an emotional reaction by the high priest, it is actually a very specific official action taken by the high priest that is to be taken by him when he hears what he deems to be blasphemy in the court of the Sanhedrin, to stand to his feet and to tear, rend his garments. And he notes here that Jesus' statement removes, removes from them all of the embarrassing uh, situation with these witnesses. Now, whew, the high priest says, we don't have to worry about the fact that these guys can't get any of their stories straight. 
We don't have to worry about any of that anymore. It doesn't make the trial any more legitimate, but it gives them a conclusion. It gives them the conclusion that they were looking for. And it substantiates what I said at the beginning of our time together, that this is a trial looking for a charge. Now they have it. The witnesses that were brought forward seemed to be laying the grounds, uh, fake grounds though they were, for something like an insurrection or for stirring up and threatening action against the civil authorities, which is what they're going to need when they try to take this to the, to the Romans. Uh, but for now, they are happy to change that charge within their counsel to blasphemy. We'll stop there real quick. What, what is blasphemy? Well, blasphemy is a charge that, as time went on, sort of was narrowed more and more down to where one had to speak against the name of God. But as it was earlier, and as it was at this time, blasphemy meant to dishonor God by diminishing his majesty or depriving him of rights to which he is entitled. So it's pretty broad. And to the high priest... Jesus' claim of Messiahship and his equating of himself with the Son of Man from Daniel and the Son of God from Psalm 110, that was an attack on God's majesty and a lessening of honor. And so that rose to the level of the capital crime of blasphemy against God himself. And thus, the verdict that is pronounced Remember, in violation of all those rules of the Sanhedrin, the verdict that is pronounced by not just the high priest, but by all of the council, Mark tells us, was that Jesus was deserving of death. The only problem with their reasoning, of course, and the thing that they had not considered, the thing that they would not consider, was that Jesus' claims were 100% true. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of Man. You know, for anyone else to speak this way, it would be blasphemy. But for God made flesh to say these things is glorious gospel truth. You know, it, it is the Sanhedrin who are dishonoring God as he stands before them, depriving him of rights to which he is entitled. It is they who are guilty of blasphemy. But there is one other problem that they have. Mentioned it a moment ago. The, the sentence here, according to the law of Moses, for blasphemy was stoning. Leviticus 24, 16. But in the situation, the civil situation, the political situation of the Jews at this time being under Roman authority, they can't do that. They cannot carry out a capital punishment. Therefore, if the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, are to attain their ultimate goal of the death of Jesus, they're going to have to have it carried out by the Romans. The Sanhedrin, after all is said and done, they could only do as they do to condemn him as deserving death. That's not really a formal sentence. It's a condemnation. That he deserves it, he should get it, but it will have to be up to the Romans to carry it out. But that doesn't mean that the great Sanhedrin, as they're called, 
could do nothing at all, and it doesn't mean that they're done dishonoring God. Mark tells us that they now began to take out their wrath on Jesus by means of the, the most offensive and degrading actions that a Jew could have foisted upon them. And some, Mark says, began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him. Another fulfillment of Scripture, by the way. Isaiah 50 says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And they add mocking to everything by saying to him, we read, prophesy. It says that they, they covered his face and they would strike him and other, the other gospels tell us that they say, prophesy, who hit you? There was a, a belief about the Messiah that he would be able to, actually through the sense of smell and not sight, to be able to identify people. So they say, come on, you're the Messiah. Tell us who's hitting you. In a, in a just terribly mocking uh, mocking way. And we'll leave it there. You know, as Jesus is turned over to the guards, who will hold Jesus until sunup, where the Jews, for the sake of appearance, will, will have a formal, appropriate, lawful meeting in the Council of the Sanhedrin. You know, Mark tells us that those soldiers even continue this horrific treatment of the Son of God. And beloved, as we close this part of this record, let us, again, be so mindful of what our Lord endured for our sake and in deep gratitude for what he endured for our sake that we might be made right with God, let us offer up our own bodies, our own minds as living sacrifices every day and in every way and so let us honor and glorify this man, this God-man who bought us. And to that, let us say, amen. Father, we thank you for the, the humility of our Lord, who, though he could have ended this at any time, who willingly under, undertook it for us. That he allowed this, Father, that, that he bore all of this for us, and will later bear your wrath, the cup of your wrath, so that we might drink the cup of your blessing. We love you. We thank you for what your, your, Lord, your son has done. And we pray in his name, amen.